Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Aquarius podcast. My special guest today is Jeffrey C. Hook. He is a finance professor at the Johns Hopkins School. He's written a new book called The Myth of Private Equity, and he has some critiques of the industry. We'll be discussing those right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Aquarius Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the acquirer's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of acquirer's funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquirersfunds.com. What is the myth of private equity? The myth of private equity, Toby, is that the private equity investment class, specifically leveraged buyouts, is the best thing for the investor since sliced bread. So the myth is essentially that private equity beats the S&P 500, provides these super high returns, leaving the public markets in the dust. And therefore, institutional investors like pension funds and university endowments should put a lot of money into the private equity class as opposed to buying stocks in the S&P 500. The returns that the private equity industry promote seem to bear that out. The private equity industry, some of the funds, they do run around saying their returns are 20 or 30% a year. When you look at the actual statistical data, provided either through state pension fund public reports or the various data services like Preakin or Cambridge Associates or PitchBook. When you look at the actual facts, and you know, of course, a lot of people in the business don't like to do that, but when you look at the actual facts, you'll see that over the last 15 years, the public markets, which let's say for the sake of this conversation, we'll define as the S&P 500 index, the public markets have beaten the typical leveraged buyout fund by a couple of percentage points. And so the claims of these fantastic returns simply are not true. Let's just take a step back a little bit. So um, for those who don't know, what you, you described, we talked about it a little bit earlier as, as leverage buyouts, but what, what can you give us an overview of private equity? What is private equity? Okay. There's three kinds of private equity. So for those viewers that are not real in-depth, knowledgeable type people in the finance world, private equity is simply an investor buying stock in a private company. It's not listed on an exchange like the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. So you're buying private stock with the hope that the privately owned company will go public and you'll be able to sell your stock 
or that the private company will sell itself in a merger to a larger company for cash. So that's, that's the idea that I'm going to try to get out of all my investments in public stock and direct a small portion of that to private stock in the hope of getting a better return. That's sort of the idea. Now, there's roughly three classifications of private equity that your listeners should think about. The biggest one, and that's the one covered in this book, is the leverage buyouts. So that's the biggest one. The second largest is probably venture capital. And the third would be growth capital. So I can describe just succinctly for the listeners what it is. Leverage buyouts is when a private fund buys a low-tech, profitable business that's been around for years and tries to enhance its equity returns or boost up its returns by throwing on a lot of debt. And, you know, it's, it's not any kind of rocket science. If you buy a house for 100,000 and borrow 80,000 and the house increases in value by 20% in one year, well, then your equity return is gonna be 100%. You invested 20% of equity, you borrowed the rest, the house goes up in value by 20%, you made 100% return. So the leverage looks terrific in boosting your return. If you bought the same house for 100,000 and didn't borrow a dime, you paid all of the money in cash, well, then your return at the end of that year is 20%. So in the conservative situation, you had a 20% return, which is not bad. In the situation where you borrow a lot of money, you got a 100% return. So the leverage enhanced the return. Of course, it also does it on the reverse. <laughs> you know, if the house drops in value, you know, you get wiped out, your equity gets wiped out. So it cuts both ways. But that's the idea behind the leverage buyout private equity phenomenon that's been around for say 30 years. We'll borrow money and boost our returns. And since the stock market has tended to go up and private company values follow public company values, that strategy has provided a profit hasn't provided as much profit for the investors as it has for the PE managers. We can get into that later. The other sector is venture capital, which is you know really the rage now because of the you know rocketing type valuations for high tech companies. The venture capital is really when the investor firm sort of targets companies that aren't quite ready to go public, they don't have a proven business model. Most of them are out of the mother's garage, okay? They're not like Steve Jobs working in his mother's garage anymore. They're usually a lot bigger than that when they get venture capital, but they're not quite ready for prime time. And then growth capital would be companies that are sort of between a standard leverage buyout candidate, which is some established business with a good customer base or a brand name and a good profit record. But they're, they're sort of more proven than your venture capital type firm. So that's, that's growth capital. So those are the three kinds, leverage buyouts, venture capital, and growth capital. The, the, the myth of private equity, the book that you've written, that's largely about the leverage buyout State the buyout stage is that is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I would portray myself more as an expert in leverage buyouts. Though I, I would tell your listeners some of the issues that 
would be problematic for investors in say buyout funds also surface in venture capital and growth capital, most sectors of which have a hard time beating a public market index. What 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 is the the slip betwixt cup and mouth where where it does seem that the promise is that the we can buy these companies more cheaply, we can sell them for at the at the best time to sell them. We'll we'll put some leverage on them. We'll also have an operational improvement. Uh, that that sounds to me like that's a pretty good recipe for generating returns. Where is the where is the problem with that approach? Well, that was the approach that was effective when the business really got out of the blocks 30, 35 years ago, and it worked well. So that particular strategy laid the foundation for the business's early success, which I say had a duration of about 10 or 15 years. But as you often see, and you've probably seen it in your own work, is when a sector, be it metals or commodities, or in this case, leveraged buyouts, when it has success, the tendency for Wall Street and the investment community is just to throw money at it, thinking that the past will predict the future. So by the early 2000s, there was much, much more money chasing buyout deals. And as you, you know, as you got a little closer to the present, so you have many funds, there's hundreds of them now, chasing the deals that have the same kind of profile, these low-tech money makers. And the formula which worked 10 or 15 years behind that you know, of buying cheap, you know, fixing it up a little, putting on debt. It, it didn't work the last 10 or 15 years, not because the private equity managers are stupid, they're not, but they're paying higher prices. So they're paying higher prices or competing for the same product. And finally, from the investor's point of view, the fees, which were high early, are still high. So the fees are three or 4% off the top, as I think many of your listeners have heard about. When you're taking three or 4% off the top as a manager, and of course that's great for the managers, they're making billions. It just makes it almost mathematically impossible to beat a, an index fund where the fees are one one hundredth of that. You know, you just, it's, it's just tough to do. Um, how does the industry work? So the industry works by you know, a group of, say, people like myself, or perhaps like you, you know, a lot of good financial knowledge, know how to close deals, you know, a collection of them will set up the fund. I mean, a lot of times these are successor funds from prior teams, but so a team sets up a fund, recruits a lot of big institutional investors who, let's say, throw in $500 million. And so that's their bank account. That's their checkbook. And, they get, and then the team runs around and looks for companies to buy. And so that process takes a couple of years, you know, finding companies, participating in the negotiations, working with investment bankers that are conducting auctions. So it takes two or three years minimum to spend the 500 million and of course raise the debt to finance all these deals. 
And then you've got a little period of three or four years where you're supposedly improving the companies. So you bought the, you bought the company. It was already pretty good to begin with. Otherwise, nobody would lend money to it. But so now you're trying to improve it. Uh, you know, questionable whether that's always going to be the case. The companies were so good to begin with, so it's tough to improve them. But you try to, and then you hope that you can sell them. You know, five, six, seven years after you own them. Now that's not always the case. You know, a lot of these funds now hold the investments for 12, 13 years. But that's the theory. So you take a few years to buy the companies. Uh, then you have a few years to try to improve them. Then you have a few more years to sell them. And hopefully you've done all that and you've made some money for your investors. You've certainly made a lot for yourself as a manager. You hope you made some money for your investors. And then you're going to raise another fund to do it all over again. But it's a little bit like what you see on your website. It's a concentrated approach. So the fund is only gonna buy 10 or 12 companies, much like say a value investor, like you talked about on your podcast before, might look at 10 or 15 value opportunities. So the funds are somewhat concentrated in a small group of companies, much like a concentrated value fund would be. And most, most of your buyout investors are gonna say, we're value buyers. So they're looking for bargains. But as I said a minute ago, the bargain's a little tough to find these days. It's just too much competition. So they're concentrated. Um, they've got a lot of leverage on them. And they tend to buy smaller companies than the index that they're comparing themselves to. So they've got these three advantages that should show pretty good outperformance over the index, at least as a cohort. Um, is that the case? That's the promise. That's the hope. And I'm sure these investors walk into these funds, putting up their tens of millions of dollars with that hope. But as the results point out, that hope, at least for the last dozen years, hasn't been achieved. They're, the funds simply are not beating the markets from the investor's point of view. Now, if the funds perhaps charge lower fees, let's say they were only charged, you know, the typical fee structures, I'm sure a lot of people have heard is called two and 20. If they were fees were to be reduced, say by half, uh, we'd have to be having a different conversation. I think you know, quite a few of these buyout funds would be beating the market. As it is now, out of 100 buyout funds, only the top 25 would beat the stock market. So it doesn't say much for the business, you know, when 75% are not beating the stock market. Now, you know, some person who's like a sports nut could say, well, wait a second, you know, major league baseball player is batting 250. So they're, they're, they're striking out or getting out 75% of the time, but the investment business, 25% batting average is horrible. The uh, part of the problem I understand is the calculation of the results. So can you perhaps walk us through how the results are calculated and why that sort of might give a misleading impression of what's occurring in the funds? Well, first, your listeners ought to know that the actual numbers, the results are opaque. They're often hidden. And you, you know, you, they'd be surprised that they're 
the industry has convinced legislators in many states to keep private equity keys hidden, like like the Pentagon keeps the nuclear launch codes hidden. There's actually laws passed where this is a secret, uh, some national security type secret. But for those where the numbers are out there, I mean, you, you look at, at sort of three measurements. The first one is the most popular. It's called the internal rate of return. And probably a lot of your listeners learned that in school if they took finance. So that's sort of like, well, here's the rate of return and I'm using a discounted cash flow calculation. So, you know, for the last 10 years, it might be 10% or 12% or something of that nature. So they usually calculate the internal rate of return on a fund and then compare it to something like the S&P 500. Or if they want to be actually intellectually honest, they have to allow some premium to the S&P 500 to account for the you know, the Ill- illiquidity, which is means that you can't sell a private equity investment like you can sell a stock like Amazon stock. So the first one's the internal rate of return. But since it can be manipulated in various ways, and the ones that would be most obvious and the easiest to explain is if you sell your good deals first as a fund, sell the good ones first and hold the dogs for eight or nine years, the way the math works is you've boosted your rate of return. So a couple of professors designed a return mechanism that's a little I don't know, more comparable to, say, running a mutual fund with an index. And you know that one uh, can also be manipulated. I, I like it a little better, but it can also be manipulated by selling the good deals first. So you got some questions, both one and two, that have been addressed, not just by me, but other people that observe the industry. The one I like the best is called the total value in versus the total value out. That's kind of the easiest to understand for a layperson. So I'll just give you an example. People put in a hundred million into a private equity fund and then eight or nine years later, when everything has been sold, they get a hundred, they got 150 million back. So 150 million back divided by a hundred million dollars in produces a ratio of 1.5 times. So you're not losing money, but 1.5 is not exactly hitting a grand slam or hitting a cover off the ball or throwing a touchdown pass to use a sports metaphor. 1.5 is the industry average. Yet if you listen to the propaganda oh, we're getting 20 or 30% rates of return. Well, if you just get a pencil out and do it on the back of an envelope, you know, 1.5 doesn't seem to produce those kinds of numbers. So you have a little complexity and opaqueness running into these numbers. And so you try to do the best you can with what you have. You know, I've looked at them all. It'd be a little tough for a listener to do that because a lot of the numbers are paywall. So if you want to look at a rate of return for a fund, you've got to pay ten or fifteen thousand dollars to a data service to get the information. Or you can read a book like I wrote, or maybe you know you can go to the internet. Some of the stuff is there, but it's a little tough to ferret through it. 
Is part of the problem also that you commit a certain amount of money or as an investor to the fund, you commit to say a billion dollars or whatever it might, a hundred billion dollars up front. And then it's drawn down at various times. And so the IRR begins on each tranche as it's drawn down or each commitment as it comes into the fund. Is that, does that complicate the IRR calculation? Is no, that part no, of the problem? It's- there, there, there's no mathematical complication of that. That's routinely done in any kind of corporate investment. I mean, in the sense that you've committed this money and you have to have this pool of money sitting there where you've got it at cash call, presumably earning virtually nothing. <laughs> and then it doesn't count until it actually goes into the, until it's drawn down and, and used in the fund. Yeah, you made a good point that Warren Buffett made a couple of years ago at his annual report. He said, well, you know, the rates of return are a little misleading because, yes, the investors, I guess they could leave the money in the S&P 500 or bonds or something. But, yeah, they do have to sort of keep money set aside for when they get that call from the private equity fund. Hey, we just bought a company. Send me $50 million so we could put in the equity. So you're right. There may be some forced liquidity by the investors themselves. That's a good point. But you also say that, that there's another little trick that they use using lines of credit. Yes. So I, I don't want to get too technical for the audience, but I'll try to explain it. So the idea has become that instead of just selling the good deals first, you, you, know, you have other couple other techniques to boost put a fire under your returns, even though that might seem a little artificial to people. And, you know, the credit line is one that's been increasingly popular. So the idea is some of these PE funds have grown so big. I wouldn't say some of, you know, several dozen of them, maybe even a hundred of them are big enough now where they, the, the fund themselves can borrow money on their own credit. You know, they've got enough money. So they'll go out and buy a company and do a buyout deal. Then they'll hold it for six months. And then after they've held it for six months, they drop it into their latest fund. (laughs) So the way the math works, instead of the fund owning the company for, say, five years and then selling it, the fund will only own the company for four and a half years. So five-year holding period versus four and a half years. So, you know, a lot of people are hearing this, well, what's the big deal? It's only six months. But you'd be surprised a six-month difference can add a couple of percentage points to the rate of return, thereby making the fund manager look even smarter. Yeah, I mean, the problem from the fund point of view today is everybody's starting to do it. So pretty soon they'll they got to think of something else, I guess. But if you if you have that approach, doesn't that if that then delays the call on the equity, isn't that actually boosting those returns? Well, yeah, but it's a question of you've bought the company with the intention of dropping it into the fund. I mean, is this an artificial way of kicking up the returns? I would say it is. I mean, would a securities lawyer who deals with misrepresentations define that as well? I don't know. You'd have to look at all the contracts associated both with the fund and the way the fund bought the company and then dropped it into the, into the investment vehicle. And I'm not an attorney, but I, 
I just think it's a little shaky. Again, if you look at the way people have talked about it, it seems to me the majority of observers think it's a little shaky and misleading to boost the returns in this manner. What's the main problem? Is it is it that there's now so much competition in there that every company that comes up for there's a competitive auction for companies as they're sold. And so they're paying higher prices. That's clearly the case. In addition to that, there are high fees charged by the firms. And so what, and then there's this sort of gamification of the returns. The it's, you could, on, I guess the funds could say in their defense, they'd say, well, this is being capital efficient. We're only drawing down what we require at the time that we require it. But there is this sort of, the, the IRR calculation does seem to be, it's not a representation of what the customer receives. So you've got these three sort of sources of that just uh, that contribute to lower returns than seem to be advertised. Uh, is that is that a fair sort of representation of what's what what the the main issue is or issues? Exactly. I, I don't think I could summarize it any better. You know, high pricing because of the competition, the the high fees, and then the gamification, as you pointed out. Now, each one of these, you know, could be remedied, you know, one with less funds out there, which would take, you know, that would take 10 years or so for the lower returns to sink in. And I think eventually that will happen. As, as far as the fees go, I, mean, I think the industry, to its credit, has been incredibly resilient with keeping the fee structure as it is even though the returns have been mediocre. So you got to give them credit. They've, they've fostered this aura of the fund managers all being geniuses. It's remarkable. So that one, uh, you know, it's going to take a while. The gamification of returns, I just don't see that being curtailed without some kind of government intervention or maybe some plaintiff's lawsuit. You know, once some big fund has lost money, they can, you know, some big pension plan. Oh, I lost money because they were, you know, messing with the true returns. That's a possibility, but that would all be down the road. So, yeah, you got those three pillars that are tend to hurt investors in a negative way. These, um, th those sort of criticisms of the industry um, have been around for a little while. And there's uh, Dan Rasmussen, who I've had on the podcast a few times, who runs a, he, he does a private equity replication in public markets. And that's his exact criticism that you can sort of achieve the same returns without the illiquidity and without the fees. But um, presumably these are so well known that it seems um, it's it's striking that people do continue to invest. So my question, I guess, is who are the who are the investors in these funds, and why are they sort of ignoring this evidence? Well, I, you know, Dan and I have talked about this, and as you pointed out, he he runs one of the few, if not the only, what I call buyout replication fund. I wrote an article with a professor friend of mine about producing a buyout replication fund where you could you basically develop an algorithm for a company that's similar to a buyout for, and you just, you just buy public companies that are similar and then leverage them in your portfolio. And I, you know, I remember talking to investment consultants. I was, you know, hopefully, you know, thinking about maybe introducing the idea institutions. He said, well, 
you know, no one's going to want to buy it. None of the institutions are going to want to pay you for that. You know, they would prefer to invest in LBO funds directly rather than have a public equity substitute. So you might say, and I'm sure Dan has, you know, reflected on this as well. You know, I, I haven't talked to him in a year or so, but you have to look at the mentality of the institutional managers working at these big pension funds or these endowments or these large nonprofit foundations. They've sunk, you know, probably a billion dollars into these buyouts, maybe more, despite the fact that, you know, it should be known to most of them that they're not beating the public markets. They may keep their eyes closed and wear blindfolds, who knows? But you got to look at it from their point of view. You know, let's say you're working in a big foundation as the investment manager. You're probably making more money than the president of the foundation. So you're making one or two million dollars a year. And to justify that, you have to say, my job is so complicated. I can't just buy stocks and bonds that trade publicly. I have to do all this complicated stuff like private equity, hedge funds, commodities, real estate, private funds, and so on. So it has to be very complicated. So I have to have a staff and I have to get a big salary and a bonus. So they don't tell the board of directors, well, you know, private equity, most of these other things don't beat a simple index. Not only that, they, so words, What's their motivation? Their motivation is to preserve my career and advance my compensation. I have to get into all these exotic investments. Now, you might say, well, wait a second, Jeff, wouldn't the board of directors uh, of the pension plan object that they're not using these investment vehicles to beat the market since they do not beat the market? Wouldn't there be some objection? No. The directors of a lot of these big institutions, the trustees or the board of directors, they're not finance people. You know, you look at a typical state pension plan. I mean, they're smart people. They might be heads of the unions. They might be political appointees. Sometimes they're the treasurer of the state. But a lot of times, the majority of these people, I'd say most times, the majority of these directors do not have any financial training. So when the investment manager is getting paid, you know, a million or two million a year at some pension plan or foundation walks in with a stack of papers, this detailing all these complicated investments that they have to make when they throw out all kinds of mathematical equations and terms like alpha and beta and standard deviation R squared. The director's eyes glaze over and they soon fall into a smooth numbing sleep. And so the answer to your question is that, yes, the institutions keep buying, but it's mainly for the managers to preserve compensation, jobs, and career. There's also, uh, there's this sort of mutual um, uh, myth, I guess, that they each agree on, the, the customers and the funds, and that's that the returns are a lot smoother than they are in actuality. And it benefits the it benefits the investors because they don't have to show the big markdown on on you know that presumably private markets are the the pricing even though the 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 mark isn't mark to market the uh the market is is shifting all the time and it's as volatile as a as a public market investment but you don't need to show it because 
the mark doesn't come in at least until the end of the month. And then the manager has an opportunity to sort of, they're not, you know, it's not literally the worst trade. So that, you know, a private, a private fund manager has, um, you know, all of that. If the, if the fund is publicly traded, that every single trade is, um, is known. And so the drawdown might look enormous. The volatility looks enormous. The private fund that might have an identical company, but it's privately traded or it's not traded at all, it's private. They sort of look at this other mark. And so the, the, the volatility reduction is, is false. It's, it's fake, but it, it, it's real enough for the fund investors. Does, does that make sense? No, that's been a practice that's been pointed out. I, I've pointed it out. A couple other people, there's a small coterie of people that, you know, sort of share my views and publicize them, but you're absolutely right. And, you know, I've been an investment banker for many years before I became a finance professor, and I was also a private equity investor. And so I can tell your listeners, you're absolutely right. The market for publicly traded companies has a very high correlation to the market for private companies. So if you're doing a merger deal as an investment banker, you know, the pricing that you will get when you sell that company will correspond pretty well to public market pricing for similar companies. So what happened in 2008, 2009, when the market cratered, the stock market cratered, private market values defined as what companies were selling for in M&A deals also dropped to drop significantly, probably 30% if you look at the data. So interestingly, buyouts, even though they're more leveraged, if you look at statistics for what the buyout firms said happened, they said that when the market dropped 37% in 2009, they said by some sheer weight of fancy, I guess, that our investments only dropped 30% which contradicts financial theory of the last 60 years, multiple textbooks and three Nobel laureates. No one questioned that. No one, not the government, not the investors, because it was all in their interest to show, you know, a smoother ride than the volatile public market. So that mark to market conundrum or paradox has continued since then, which now we can look at it 12 years where the leverage buyout equity has a smoother rate of return than the stock market themselves, which of course, as I said a minute ago, turns financial theory upside down. I guess you always do fairly well on exams that you mark yourself. <laughs> um, who are the enablers of, of this sort of uh, the chicanery? Okay, so look, the private equity titans, the big rich people that own, you know, billions of dollars that, you know, run these funds, you know, they're not loners. They're not perpetuating the myth of these great super returns by themselves. Well, they have a lot of cooperation. Maybe it's inadvertent cooperation, but it is cooperation. I call the cooperators or the enablers fellow travelers. So you have the customers themselves. We just kind of discussed why the customers are not really raising any objections. I mean, the government 
which I would say, you know, who would has ostensible control over the private equity from a regular regulatory point of view would be the Securities and Exchange Committee, the SEC. I mean, they only have a handful of people that look in the industry and they haven't really filed any suits against mark to market or return smoothing or any other things we've talked on. So you have the customers themselves that are enablers. You have the government basically sitting on the sidelines, even though this is a mammoth industry now. The business media, it's been an enabler. I mean, they've tended to be an echo chamber. I mean, it's expensive to investigate the claims. You have to get into the data service. You have to be very facile with numbers and how the data services report. So in their defense, I mean, a lot of the reporters in the business media don't have the resources and perhaps wouldn't have the technical knowledge to really dig deep. And when I've talked to a couple of them about this, they say, look, you know, if, if it's not cold, if it's not a kind of a cold fact laid out there, uh, you know, the editor doesn't want us to report it. You know, they're just, you know, afraid of being ridiculed by the industry or contradicted. So those would be the you know three branches of enablers. I mean, then you have some of the investment consultants and wealth management firms that have been pushing this, sort of for pecuniary reasons because, you know, they would get paid for recommending a private equity fund or at least investigating them, whereas if they were to recommend an index fund to their clients, then the clients would say, well an index fund, what do I need you for? <laughs> Why am I paying you a million dollars to advise me in investments if you just suggest I go to an index fund? Well, thanks for the advice, and I'll see you later. You had some criticism for academics as well. Well, academics, they, and I'm part of the academic world. So, I mean, academics, when we have tended to like critique private equity, I don't think we've been up to date. You know, a lot of the academic research that you see on private equity and returns is pretty old. You know, so it's, it's as I point out, you know, it's five or ten years old. So it's really not up to date. And as a result, it reflects a lot of old information when the industry was doing better. So the academics have tended to use sort of stale information when they write these papers. Not all of them, but you know, quite a few of them. But they, they've come up to speed. I've, I've read a couple of recent studies that are quite good and, and would reflect my point of view. I mean, the other thing is when the academics, and, and there are various private equity centers at prestigious universities, I mean, they tend to spend more time on sort of the mechanics that we've covered already. How do you identify a good deal? How does an invest, investment firm close it, evaluate it, do due diligence on it? And then as you mentioned earlier, improve it and then finally sell it. So it tends not to be analytical a lot from a coursework perspective, but more descriptive or how to. Got it. Uh, if you had a magic wand, what do you do to sort of change the uh, change the industry or change the way the industry is viewed? I think the industry is so influential and so wealthy that you know any change is going to be very very tough. And so, as I point out in the last chapter, 
any hope for reform is is so far out in the future and the probability is so small, we shouldn't even be talking about it. But I mean, you know, if you were going to reform the industry, I think the the first thing I would do is to have the government try to pass some kind of legislation where there's more clarity as to what all the numbers are, you know, what the various rates of return are, how they compare, what the fees are. And I think that would really clear the air, you know, with that kind of information disclosure out there, you'd probably eliminate 50 or 60% of the funds within two years because they just couldn't cut it. Uh, Jeff, uh, we're coming up on time. If uh, folks want to uh, get in touch with you or follow along with your research or find the book, um, how do they go about doing that? Well, the book's certainly available on all the book-selling websites and at your bookstores, so that's one way to do it. I mean, I do have a website, Jeff Hook, where you can look at my background and maybe look at some of the papers that I've written with some of my colleagues at Johns Hopkins and George Washington University. You can drop me an email. It's like I'm anonymous. I'm on the Johns Hopkins University Kerry Business School website, so I'm not hard to track down. And the book is The Myth of Private Equity by Jeffrey C. Hook. Thank you very much for your time, sir. My pleasure. Thanks again. (laughs) 